The Healthy Alabama podcast is sponsored by Enroll Alabama, a program that enrolls Alabamians in the health insurance marketplace. Enroll Alabama is a project of AIDS Alabama. For more information, visit the website AIDSAlabama.org. Welcome to the Healthy Alabama podcast, a new episode of the Healthy Alabama podcast, sponsored by Enroll Alabama, a project of AIDS Alabama. And uh, they're on the front line of trying to help to prevent this deadly disease that disproportionately affects people of color, but of course affects people all around this country and around the world. I'm David Person, host and producer of the podcast, and today's topic is one that is very serious on a number of levels and is also very relevant on a number of levels. It meets at the nexus of health and wellness, cultural debates, politics, and the law. And that's a lot. But uh, it's a conversation that we need to have in our state and in our nation. And we are now going to be talking with someone who is on the front lines of this conversation in more ways than one, Dr. Yeshida Robinson. She is the medical director of the Alabama Women's Clinic. And Dr. Robinson, you've got your hands very full. Yes, I do. Um, like you said, I'm the medical director of Alabama Women's Center for Reproductive Alternatives. I'm also the owner and solo obstetrician gynecologist uh, running a private practice, which is Alabama Women's Wellness Center, also here in Huntsville, Alabama. Two businesses, one that uh, deals primarily with your work as a, as an OB-GYN. Yes. So as an obstetrician gynecologist, that means I take care of the full spectrum of women's health care. I also function as a primary care physician for many women because most women of reproductive age, they don't see another health care provider. Their obstetrician gynecologist is their only practitioner. So that means I may manage their high blood pressure, their diabetes, thyroid dysfunction. I also deliver babies at Alabama Women's Center for Reproductive Alternatives. It's a reproductive health clinic. So we are the only clinic here that provides abortion care, serving all of North Alabama. We also take care of patients from the surrounding states. So that would include Georgia, Florida, Louisiana, Mississippi. We have patients that also come from the Tennessee area. Hmm. So, of course, the word in there that's going to be the trigger word for many people is the word abortion. And my first question to you is, how do you process that when you're dealing with people and they learn about who you are and what you do and they hear that word? What do you see and how do you how do you handle it? So for me, as a women's health specialist, an obstetrician gynecologist is a health care provider who takes care of women through their full reproductive spectrum, through all of their reproductive lives. So I take care of young girls from as early as age eight and nine all the way up. Women are going to need different services depending on where they are on that reproductive health spectrum. It's not hard for me to process because I understand that abortion care is health care, and this is something that women need. Women, they will have pregnancies. Those pregnancies will end in live births. Sometimes they will be miscarriages, and sometimes those women may need help navigating abortion care. And I am somebody who can help them to do that. 
regardless. It's a service that as an OBGYN, we're all trained to do. So for me, it's no different than any other obstetrician gynecologist. It's just that some OBGYNs have chosen to exclude that from their practice, and I have not. And the reason some have decided to exclude it is because of the controversy, the politics, and maybe for some the moral questions. You've chosen not to. Talk about your reasoning for doing what you do juxtaposed against their reasoning. Well, my reasoning is exactly the same. You know, part of the reason I provide this care is because of the moral component to it. It is immoral to turn your back on a woman in her time of need. And during pregnancies, sometimes pregnancies that are complicated, these women need to have abortions. And so it is hard for me morally, you know, being raised as a Christian to say that I'm going to turn my back on somebody just because it is a difficult decision or because it's difficult for someone else to hear. There are so many stories that people don't really think about when it comes down to uh, women and them trying to navigate how they're going to handle pregnancies. Sometimes it can be a pregnancy where a mother's life may be at risk. It can be a pregnancy where the pregnancy itself has just gone wrong, to keep it very simple so most people understand where it's not developing properly and that fetus will not live outside of the womb. Sometimes it is a pregnancy where there is no problem with the pregnancy itself. However, the woman's circumstances dictates that she may need to end that pregnancy. And for whatever reason it is, I don't feel that there's any reason that's more valid than another. When women make these decisions, then I am there and I'm supportive without being judgmental to help them to get through that. You have, I think, probably caused some people listening to have conniptions because they're hearing you're a doctor who performs abortions, but you identify yourself as a Christian and you have a moral rationale for why you do what you do. That runs so counter to the narrative that we hear in the mainstream media and in the non-mainstream media and in churches. That's why I wanted to have you on, because I know you have a very particular point of view that is informed by things that we don't normally hear discussed. So let's hover here for a minute, and I want to start by something that you referred to. Uh, and you alluded to really, which is the, the various conditions of pregnancy or births that are problematic that we don't often know about and hear about. When I visited you at your office some weeks ago, you described to me some very disturbing conditions that babies are born in that we never hear about, mm-hmm. where they don't have all of their skull in place or don't have all of their face in place and other types of conditions. Let's start there. Do you think that the general public understood how complicated and fragile birth can actually be, that maybe they'd have a different point of view about this whole question of abortion? I know for sure that if the general public understood these conditions, that they would have a take a different stance as far as um, how they feel about abortion. I see people change their hearts and minds on a daily basis. Many people that I take care of, they come into the clinic when they have a complicated pregnancy. And the thing that I hear over and over again is, I didn't believe in abortion, but, 
or I will never judge another person again. I never thought that I would find myself in this situation. So I believe 100% that if people understood and tried to put themselves in someone else's shoes, or if they are ever unfortunate enough to have to go through one of those situations where they have to make those difficult decisions or have a family member that has to go through it, I think that they would understand a little bit more. And I think they would change their minds. And, you know, you were saying that my standpoint is so different than what we hear in the mainstream media and what we hear people talk about in churches and just in public as you're sitting at the table talking to your family. But that's part of the problem It's because we have stigmatized abortion so much and we have separated it from just general health care that people feel that they can't have these conversations. And even people who do believe in it, they are sometimes very afraid to speak up and talk to other people about how they feel and what they think and, and their thought processes. I think that people, one of the things that's most important is for people to understand that they can hold two different truths. There's not a simple black and white. There's a very gray area when it comes to pregnancies and how people deal with pregnancies. And you can be somebody who is completely opposed to abortion, but you can also understand or say that you respect people enough to let them make decisions for themselves and for their their families and that you'll just respect that decision whether you feel that you would do the same thing and that's completely okay and I think if we start to think about it that way I think that we'd start moving in a totally different direction when it comes down to women's health care because the way that we think about abortion right now with this strict black and white a strict good and bad or right or wrong is putting women's lives in jeopardy Right now in the state of Alabama, we're trying to completely ban abortion. That means women who have to have abortions to save their own lives for health care reasons, they may be put at risk, too, because we're also attaching a penalty of imprisonment for physicians who provide abortion care. And there is no strict black and white when it comes to the time for a pregnancy to come to an end. Sometimes it's a judgment call for physicians. So you're putting a physician in a situation where they have to think about or they have to consider how some outside person is going to judge the care that they provided for their patient. And I would say you as a patient, the last thing you would want is your physician sitting there thinking about themselves as opposed to being totally focused on you and your health care when it comes down to that time. Well, absolutely. And I would also add the last thing I would want is the government inserting itself between me and my physician when it comes to my health care. Exactly. Those are the two things that I think about. Now, let's describe, and I say let's, I don't mean let's, I mean you, because you're the expert on that. I don't know how to describe. But but if you can, I want you to, again, uh, for the benefit of this audience, talk about some of these conditions with the medical terms that babies are, are often born in that we don't hear about, where they are absolutely life for them outside of the womb is impossible because of the conditions under which they're born. Most recently, I've taken care of a patient that had what was called acrania, where there's uh, absence of the cranium or of the skull forming properly. However, everything else on the baby was completely normal. The extremities, meaning the legs and arms, were normal. The torso was normal. But the face and the head was completely not normal. 
The baby was born alive. It had a mouth that looked um, somewhat normal. However, there was a cleft on both sides. The cleft went all the way up to the eye socket. There was only one eye that you could see. And each time this baby would breathe deeply, you would see the saliva. It would percolate out of the mouth and out of the eye socket. That was pretty horrific for me to see as a physician and for my patient to experience. With acrania, because the cranium is not there, the brain tissue does form, but there is no, the cranium is not there to hold it in. So when I laid this baby on this mom's abdomen, she could see the gray matter or the, the brain start to come out onto her skin. It's, um, I know that's pretty hard for the public to hear, but that's the reality that some of these patients face. And here in the state of Alabama, we put patients in a situation where when an anomaly or abnormality like this is discovered after 20 weeks, because there's still cardiac activity or still a heartbeat, we cannot terminate that pregnancy. And so this is what a mother has to face. And I think it's absolutely okay if a mother decides that she wants to bring that pregnancy to term. What's not okay is for our legislators to force that upon a mother. For for babies that are born in those conditions, though, are they really able to survive? No, that is not compatible with life. So that, that baby lived for about five hours, and that is a difficult five hours. I mean, the, the central nervous system is not completely intact. The respirations or the breathing is very agonal. It's hard to watch. It's difficult to see. So you're you can visibly see that these babies are suffering, and that is cruel. So your point is that not only should the babies not be put through this trauma, but the mothers shouldn't be put through the trauma of having to see their child in this condition. And so because it can be determined, I'm assuming, in utero that this is the condition of the child, there's no reason to bring that child to term. That can be determined in utero. However, the majority of the time, abnormalities like that, a lot of the lethal abnormalities, meaning abnormalities that are not compatible with life, many of them we don't discover until later in the pregnancy. Usually it's around the time we do what's called the anatomy scan, where we're looking at the full anatomy or structure of the fetus in utero. And that's right around 20 weeks, which is the cutoff here in the state of Alabama for when you can terminate a pregnancy. Hmm. Other abnormalities that I have seen just this year alone and the two that we two others that we talked about when you visited the office was I had a husband and wife to come in who chose to terminate their pregnancy and their baby was diagnosed with exencephaly. So the head formed normally. However, the brain tissue was outside of the head. To give you a visual, it's like the brain set on top of the head like a separate mushroom or cap on top of the head. Hmm. That's not compatible with life. Can't survive. No, cannot survive outside of the womb. Not for long anyway. And then another one is anencephaly, which we hear of more frequently than either of the conditions that I just mentioned to you. But I think to the general public, they may feel like these things are not real. It's just things that you read about in a textbook, but it is real. And our patients are experiencing it. And so 
we need to think about the harm that we bring on these families when we tell them that they have to bring these pregnancies to term. And it's just not the trauma of seeing that pregnancy. They're the repercussions that go along with it. Pregnancy can be harmful to a mother's health. I had a mom just this year who went into what's called DIC or disseminated intravascular coagulopathy. It's basically where her blood would not coagulate anymore. She would ooze out of every pore. So where we had IVs started, she was bleeding. Her gum started to bleed. Her nose started to bleed. And it was just because she was pregnant. She was a completely healthy mom. She did well, but that mom got about 13 units of blood. We used about six packs of platelets. We gave her just all types of blood products, just trying to keep up until, you know, she could start to clot again. And as we were pouring blood into her, it was pouring out. That's And, you know, a lot of people, other healthcare providers that I talked to about this mother, they asked me, did she live? And she did. But many mothers who go into DIC do not live. And so when you tell somebody that they're going to carry a pregnancy to term, that we have already told them they're not going to take a baby home, then that's there's no logic to that at all. There's no logic to that. And, you know, and I talk about these things because not only do I take care of my patients, but sometimes a lot of my job goes into the social aspects and the other things that that are happening and how these pregnancies affect their family and what happens after that. So with the young lady who was already struggling financially, this mother, she was uh, receiving public assistance. Her insurance was provided through the state of Alabama, so she had Alabama Medicaid. Their family did not have a lot of disposable income. But the other thing that she has to deal with is because of the fact that her pregnancy continued past a certain point, then she's responsible for the burial expenses for that pregnancy. And that is quite a bit for some families who are completely not prepared for that. Even though she found out early enough, around 23 weeks, it's still giving people another 15 weeks to prepare for a burial. If they don't have extra income from week to week, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter how long they have. It's hard to prepare for that. I can imagine there are people listening who will say, okay, I get that. I get all of that. But how common is it really? How often do you really see these sorts of extreme cases? Well, the scenario that I just told you about is pretty uncommon. According to the textbooks, you would only see it about 1 in 20,000 times. In the last three months, though, the infants that I told you about, that was within the last three months, three babies that had cranial abnormalities that were not compatible with life. But there are so many other things that fall on the spectrum that are detrimental to infants. You have babies that have cardiac defects. You have babies that have what's called gastroschisis. We actually talked about one that I took care of here in the last couple of months. It wasn't a patient of my own. These are patients that come from other obstetricians' offices, but those obstetricians don't provide abortion care. But with gastroschisis, that's where the abdominal wall does not close properly. So this baby had several organs that were outside of the body, including the liver. And that's not something that could be fixed. This baby had multiple other abnormalities. But when you're seeing those type of abnormalities, it's not uncommon that they will have other abnormalities that are incompatible with life. All right. So I can imagine there are people who will say, okay, okay, I hear all of that. 
So what we need to do is we need to have a law that says no abortions except for rape, incest, health of the mother, or health of the baby. There, that should settle it. What would you say to that? I would say that that's still unacceptable. Like I told you with the young lady who had DIC or disseminated intravascular coagulopathy, she was carrying that pregnancy to term. That was her choice. However, we didn't know that that pregnancy was going to threaten her life until it was time for her to deliver. So how can you tell anybody that they have to take a gamble with their life? It is absolutely okay if a woman chooses to do that. But if she finds herself pregnant and decides that she does not want to, who am I to tell her that she has to take that chance? And say, oh, it's pretty rare. You just take that chance anyway. That's not my decision, and it's not the decision of any legislator or any of our listeners. The other thing is there are other reasons that people choose to terminate pregnancies. A lot of the time, patients that I take care of, these are women who already have children. They already know what that commitment is to raising another child. And so sometimes they may choose to terminate a pregnancy out of their love and commitment to the family they already have in order to be able to continue to take care of them and to provide for them in the best way they know how. I think that it is our responsibility as a public for us to support people so that they can participate in society and be productive. And we do know if a woman cannot control her reproduction, then it is hard for her to participate in society the way she should and the way she wants to. It is okay if she decides that she wants to have a large family, but it's okay if they decide they don't want to have a family at all. There are some people who just know that they they have no desire to parent. They may they may feel that because of their upbringing, and I've heard this from some of my patients, that they don't have the capacity to parent and to mm. love a child the way they should. And they know that their life has already been so hard that they don't want to put anybody else through that. And I think that is a very loving decision and a responsible decision to make. And I think that um, one of the things that we should do is to kind of rethink how we look at people who choose to not parent or people who choose to terminate a pregnancy. Because a lot of times we think that these are just people who are irresponsible. And so they're looking at this as an easy way out. It's not an easy way out. And a lot of times this is a very responsible thing to do. And we should applaud people for that when they make that decision and let them know that it is okay. So much to think about there. Let's let's go in this direction for a minute. You are a Christian and I'm a Christian. We both know that most denominations either take a very strong position against abortion. Sometimes they will concede that, you know, there can be exceptions. But then there are Christians like our vice president, Vice President Pence, current vice president, who takes the position, if I remember correctly, that all abortion should be illegal, that it shouldn't be allowed under any circumstances. So we know there are these, these very strong uh, opinions in the church. And then there's some, there's some churches that are a little more, I'll say, liberal or a little more permissive in their thought process about abortion. As a Christian, talk a little bit about what has informed your thought process on this topic. 
I feel like um, as a Christian, our responsibility is to treat people with kindness and not to judge people. And what I see often is the decisions that we're making. And when we talk about whether abortion should be allowed or not, or if it's okay, a lot of it just goes to judging other individuals. One of the basic principles that I know as a Christian is that we should not judge. And I feel like there's one person who should be that ultimate judge and they're not walking around with you and me right now. They're inside of each and every one of us as an individual. What I'm saying is that man in general should not be judging his fellow brother or sister. And the other thing is just treating people with love and kindness. And I just feel that the way that we treat people when they decide that they don't want to continue a pregnancy, there's nothing that's loving about that. Shouting outside of abortion. Exactly. I was going to say the first thing I think about is just people yeah. that go in and out. Mm-hmm. They call themselves sidewalk evangelists or whatever they say they're doing out there on the sidewalk. They say that they're trying to help the people that are coming in inside of the clinic. There's nothing helpful about what they do. It's very harmful and it's hurtful to these young ladies. And that's not Christ-like to me. Some will say that there has to be people who are speaking on behalf of the babies or the fetuses, that they don't have a way to say, I want to live, let me live. There are people who will just say flat out, well, abortion is murder. You're killing life, human life. And this is a violation of God's law. So you've got these two arguments here. Someone has to speak for the one who has no voice, and you're violating God's law. What do you say to that? Well, I have to agree that by performing abortion, we are ending a potential life. I do understand that. But I do also understand that there has to be a woman that is carrying that pregnancy, and she has a life too. And so when you're looking at those two, I can't say that I'm valuing one more than the other. And so I'm looking at the person who's the ultimate decision maker and that woman or that person that is carrying that pregnancy is the ultimate decision maker at that time. I understand all the nuances that go into the reasons why these women may choose to end a potential life. And that's why I can understand that even though I know that there is people that look at abortion as being murder and I have to validate their thought and saying, yes, this is a potential life. I cannot take that away. I will not disagree because otherwise we can't have a conversation. But this woman, she has autonomy. There's no way that you can ever understand all of the circumstances that's going into the decision she's making. And so I have to just say that I trust her to make this decision. I trust that she's making the decision that's best for her and best for her family. One of the things I was talking about today, we had one of our representatives to come by and talk to us and talking about ways that we can help our community. And she wanted to know what things she could do to help. You know, for those people who are saying that we're taking away a potential life, the first thing that I would want to know is what can we do to help to support those lives once they get here? Because one of the reasons, like I told you earlier, that many women may choose to 
end a pregnancy is because they know that they cannot give that baby the the life that it deserves. We have so many people that cannot even afford basic health care. So if we say that it's wrong to end that life, can we not also agree that it's wrong not to give them the support they need to continue that life, to continue it in a way that is meaningful and healthy and valid? You know, people living on the streets, not able to go to the doctor when they need to, not able to pick up their medication, not able to get to school and have clean clothes and run in water every single day. Those are basic necessities. And there are some people who know they cannot provide those things consistently. Well, and I would even add that we know that just based on what we see with public policy in our country, that it's very clear that there are people who feel, or who I won't say who feel, I'll say who demonstrate a certain, you might call it disregard or dismissiveness, you might even call it callousness when it comes to the plight of children in particular. So we've got children that we know are hungry. We've got children that we know are living in substandard conditions. We know that there are children whose lives are being perhaps even put at risk by the adults in their lives. And what are we doing for those children? So it's like we're saying we, we demand that all children be born. All children must be born, but then once they're born, oh well. It's up to the adults in their lives to either get it right or not, and whatever suffering the child in- incurs as well, it, it's just that's just what happens. It seems to me that that's the way I would characterize what I see with, with some of the public policy that we have here and some of the practices. I mean, I completely agree. I had a young lady that came into my office just today. She We delivered her about 10 weeks ago. She was diagnosed with diabetes early in her pregnancy. Obviously, she was a diabetic prior to the pregnancy because she had not made it out of the first trimester and was hospitalized with blood sugars that were greater than 300. During the pregnancy, she did qualify for Medicaid, and so she was able to get her insulin and get the care that she needed. But now that she has had her baby, she was not getting that care. We had set up a postpartum appointment for her, a follow-up appointment to see her back just to follow up on her blood sugars, at about 12 weeks. So now when she came in, her blood sugars were back in the 300s. And I asked her why. You know, I asked, was she taking her medicine? And she said she had not been able to take her medicine since she had the baby. She had enough medicine to last until she had her baby. And she said she didn't have a primary care provider. So I had her to come in and we gave her prescriptions, talked to her about getting started on her medication, and she's going to call her blood sugars in to me again on Monday so we can make sure she's on the right track and doesn't end up in the hospital in DKA. That's diabetic ketoacidosis. It's a condition that some diabetics with uncontrolled diabetes can end up in a very acute situation, which, you know, they can die. But what she explained to me when I gave her the prescription, she said, well, I don't have Medicaid anymore. And I said, what do you mean? And she says, well, I only get to keep it for 60 days after I have my baby. Well, I explained to her she actually gets to keep it until the end of this month because it's the end of the month where that 60 days ended. So it goes all the way to the end of the month. So she's going to go and get as much medication as she can pick up now. But then it's like after that, you figure it out. Hmm. But we're one of the states that decided not to take Medicaid expansion. And it does affect, it it affects our patients, it affects yeah. our moms, and it affects the babies 
that we are saying that they should bring into this world, whether we can support them or not. That's a whole nother. The Affordable Care Act and Medicaid expansion is a whole nother conversation, but but it's interesting to see how those intersect. So before we run out of time, because I know you you are juggling cases even as you sit here, let's talk about what's happening on the legal front. You have a case that is currently in the court system. Talk about that. Yes. So Alabama passed a complete ban on abortion with very few exceptions. There is an exception for the health of the mother. We've already talked about the fact that that is really not acceptable when it comes down to women's health care and that that will put many women in harm's way. But um, we have challenged that case with the state of Alabama, as we have with several other bills that Alabama has brought forth and passed. Now, just to clarify, I'm sorry to interrupt, but mm-hmm. just to clarify, when you say we, you really mean you, right? Yes, me, along with excellent attorneys with the ACLU. But I want people to understand that you are taking this on as a personal cause as an OB-GYN, as a professional, as a citizen, this is you. Yes. Okay. Well, as a physician and a Christian, I feel that it's my responsibility because I understand how critical this service is for patients. And the thing about it is because of how stigmatized this subject matter is, a lot of other people will not speak up. And a lot of patients are not going to speak up because they don't understand how critical it is until they find themselves in that situation where they're seeking services that they can't even find in their own zip code. And so I am fighting to make sure that we keep these services available for women in Alabama. There are so many areas that have lost access to abortion care where that service has been chiseled away until it's pretty much inexistent. And so one of the things that we're doing is just I say I say we because I do have a, a army of people fighting with me and we have a lot of silent supporters. Also, we're fighting to make sure that these services continue to be available for women in Alabama. And so where is that case? What's the status right now? The bill was signed by our governor. The law was supposed to go into effect in November. However, Currently, abortion access is still available here in Alabama because we challenged that case. And so we're able to continue to provide abortion care. But you're expecting this to perhaps end up in front of the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court? It's quite possible it will end up in front of the Supreme Court. Okay. So what happens if the Supreme Court, a very conservative court, a court that I would say and I'm sure even you would say, is predisposed to not ruling in your favor. What happens if that indeed does come to pass? Well, unfortunately, that would mean that here in the state of Alabama, our legislators have failed our patients, have failed our women, and we have just made a critical service obsolete for our patients. It would mean that our patients would then have to travel And with that being said, we know that a lot of patients are going to be harmed. Mostly it's going to be women of color. It's going to be young women, teenagers. It's going to be those patients who are uninsured and underinsured that are not going to have access to the services. People who are well off will be able to continue to travel. 
they'll be able to travel to New York or California and access the services they need. Just hop a plane and go. But for many patients, many of the patients that I take care of, they won't have access to those services anymore. And what will this mean for you as a practicing physician? What what will you then do? Well, I am a full-spectrum women's health care provider, so I will continue to provide the services that I can provide for my patients to the very best of my ability. But as I provide those services for my patients, that means that I will take care of my patients with the constant cloud hanging over my head of whether somebody's going to come and say that I've terminated a pregnancy for a woman who needed it, if I did that and if it was justified or not. So I will work under the constant scrutiny of possibly criminal prosecution as I do my job. I don't know any other field of medicine where the doctor um, has to do that. I mean, it's one thing if they're just operating in outright neglect, but just in performing your usual duties, I don't know any other area of medicine where that happens. And as far as the patients who need access to abortion care, I never want to be somebody that plans to fail, but we have to be realistic. We are looking at ways to make sure that women who need services can get to the places that they need them. We do know that there's not going to be any funding coming from the state of Alabama or any federal funds, but there are a lot of grassroots efforts, small abortion funds, and organizations like the National Abortions Fund, which is a larger fund that is looking at ways to make sure women can access funds for travel if they need to travel to states that have been hostile to abortion care to get to other areas. Two other real quick things. I would be remiss if I didn't bring up adoption. Many people say, why not just as much as is possible, when it's medically possible, why not just bring the baby to term, encourage women to bring the baby to term, you know, if their social conditions or relationship conditions or financial conditions are not really compatible with raising a child, why not just have them bring the baby to term and put the baby up for adoption? It's hard to answer a question when you've never been in that situation. I don't know how hard it would be personally to have a child and then decide that I'm going to give that child to someone else to be raised. But I have had patients who have chosen to do that. And I think it's a valiant thing to do if that is something that they are comfortable with doing. But I think that that is a choice that patients should be able to make and they understand what they can handle and what they can't handle. Some people can't handle the idea of bringing a child to term and then sending them out into the world and not knowing if they're well taken care of. We do know that there are lots of children right now who are stuck in the system who need to be adopted, who still have not been adopted. So that's not a perfect answer either. I do have a patient who it's probably been about three or four years ago She, when she got pregnant. She and her partner there um, in college here in the Huntsville area they decided it wasn't time for them to bring a child into the world. And both of them have been on their own from a very early age. She describes taking care of herself from the time she was 14 years old. So she did not feel that she could take care of a child. And she said she did not want to subject anybody to the lifestyle that she had. So she decided to give that baby up for adoption. And then here we are several years later when she got pregnant again 
And she felt that that was so traumatic that she could never do that again. And so when she got pregnant again, she chose to terminate that pregnancy. And I don't think that I can describe all the reasons why adoption is not the perfect answer for everyone. But I think one of the things for us to understand is that our adoption system isn't perfect either. There's lots of loving families who can take care of a child who don't qualify to adopt or they just can't afford it because it is a very expensive process to go through. There are lots of children who are put up for adoption who are abused or are mistreated later. And so I can imagine as a mother bringing a child to term and then sending them out and not knowing if if that child is being put through that type of situation. Hmm. The other point that I have to raise in this conversation is this idea, this fear that many people have, and I'm talking about people who oppose abortion, they have this fear that, well, or this belief that women are using abortion solely as birth control, and they find that reprehensible. What, what do you say to people who have that point of view? What I could tell you as a healthcare professional, women don't use abortion as a form of birth control. But as a population, one of the things that we can do is to try to help people and give them proper access to birth control. I would tell you the scenario that I encounter more often is young ladies who are not very well educated when it comes down to contraceptive health care. And then another large group of women who just don't have access to good contraceptive care. We have lots of insurance plans right now that are not covering contraception. There have been bills that have been passed where employers can opt not to cover contraception for women who are employed with them. They don't have to have that as part of their insurance coverage. There are just some women who don't have the finances or don't have the insurance to be able to access contraceptive care. And so the bigger problem is access to the contraception that women need so that they can prevent unwanted pregnancies. It's not what women choose to do when they find themselves pregnant. And even if that is true for any woman, I can't imagine who would choose to go through a procedure like that as a form of contraception or a form of birth control. But even for that woman, you don't want to restrict or penalize every other woman who needs access to the service because you feel or you assume that there are some women who are using it irresponsibly. That's not the answer. Wow. This is uh this has been again, I think, a conversation that more people need to engage in or at the very least hear because you articulate a point of view that we do not hear, and you do it from a very informed perspective. I know there are people that are listening that aren't going to agree with what they've heard, but I will say that I think at least they'll have to concede that when you speak about the range of things that you do, you do it from a very informed and intelligent point of view. Again, they may choose to disagree or they may still choose to retain an opposing point of view. But I think you articulate well your point of view. 
and I am glad that you joined us today on the Healthy Alabama podcast. I hope that this interview will, if nothing else, will be a foundation for further discussion and contemplation in our state and maybe even in our nation about a topic that has really dominated our cultural and political conversations and our public policy in various ways and our legal system for what, four decades or more? Well, really more than four decades. Mm -hmm. Dr. Yoshida Robinson, she is an OB-GYN and she is also the medical director of the Alabama Women's Wellness Center. And give the name of your OB-GYN practice again. So the OBGYN practice is Alabama Women's Wellness Center, and the Reproductive Health Clinic is Alabama Women's Center for Reproductive Alternatives. Beautiful. Said it way better than I did. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Dr. Robinson, for being with us today. The Healthy Alabama podcast is sponsored by Enroll Alabama, a project of AIDS Alabama. I'm David Person, host and producer. It is produced in partnership with WJOU, Oakwood University Radio Praise 90.1 FM in Huntsville. Our theme music is produced by my man, DJ Bailey. Until next time, be healthy. <laughs>